0: Welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, July 8th, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. From this week's cover, In Search of the Big Catch, the -the behind-the-scenes work that brings big events and visitor dollars to Des Moines, by Michael Crum, the NCAA men's basketball tournament, the Dew Tour, the Bio-World Congress International Fuel Ethanol Workshop, the Ironman Competition, the U.S.-Canada Lions Leadership Forum. Those are just a few of the big events that have come to Des Moines in recent years, bringing thousands of visitors who spend their money on hotels, restaurants, local businesses, and other attractions. But what does it take to lure big ticket events and business conferences to Des Moines? The business record sat down with leaders at Catch Des Moines and spoke with those representing some of the groups that have come to the Metro to pull back the curtain on the courting process that's needed if Des Moines wants to find itself at the dance. This three-part series looks at the steps of what is often a multi-year process to bring some of the biggest events to central Iowa. Growth The Des Moines Metro has grown and evolved over the past 20 years, and that has helped efforts to bring more events to the community. The construction of Wells Fargo Arena and High vee Hall in 2005 added a 16,000-seat arena and larger convention and trade show space to the region. The construction of new hotels added both rooms and meeting space. The growth of the restaurant scene downtown provided more options for visitors, and attractions like the John and Mary Papa John Sculpture Park in the Western Gateway Park have provided amenities for visitors when they're not busy attending meetings or other events. Much of that change has been the result of a concerted plan by community leaders to help the community grow and make it an attractive place to live, work, and visit. Greg Edwards, President and CEO of Catch Des Moines, who came to Des Moines in the fall of 2000, said there was a change beginning to happen in the early 2000s that transformed the city into what it is today. You look back to those days, downtown was pretty slow, he said. There were a lot of people working downtown from 8 to 5, but at 5 o'clock it was roll up the sidewalks and everybody's going back to the burbs. Within a year of being here, the discussion started to talk about building this a new arena and maybe an events center to go along with that. And that trickled into a new library and a new science center. Community pride was beginning to swell a little bit because there wasn't a lot of community pride back then either. There's a lot of community pride now, he said. All these major things started happening and the suburban areas really started to expand and grow. And there was this big announcement of this new big shopping mall in West Des Moines called Jordan Creek, Edwards said. You look at that place. It's nice, and it's an entertainment mecca for the metro. He said the entire metro has exploded and, quote, the transformation has just been incredible, end quote. Edwards said corporate leadership in conjunction with local elected officials was a driving force to make the community grow to attract and retain employees. And he said, that's exactly what they did. The growth in recreation and aquatic centers, indoor go-kart tracks, and trampoline facilities, along with expansion of facilities to accommodate the growth in youth sports, have all played a role in the evolution of the region, Edwards said. And we're kind of in the second era of that now, with the new RecPlex in West Des Moines opening, The project in Grimes underway, the project in Johnston, and the Lordson Skate Park, he said. They're all kind of niche markets, but they're phenomenal. They all help the community and they help people who want to live here, but they help us too because they enable us to bring events in here that need those facilities, he said. Edwards described the growth over the past two decades as surreal. It started, and then it just kept going, he said. It was incredible, all that stuff that was going on, and you thought, gosh, what can we do next? A related story. Looking Back, Greg Edwards Leads Local Visitor, Tourism Industry Through Rapid Growth, Debilitating Pandemic, by Michael Crum. Greg Edwards has been at the helm of Catch Des Moines, watching the community grow and evolve as his team has worked to put Des Moines on the map and draw events and business conferences to the community. He came to Des Moines in 2000 after leading the Convention and Visitors Bureau in his hometown of Peoria, Illinois. Now, 22 years later, Edwards said he's still ready for the challenges the job brings and is looking for that next big win for the community. Edwards cut his teeth in the hotel industry before transitioning to convention and visitors bureaus. He started as a hotel restaurant bar manager in Peoria, and then joined Marriott, working at hotels in Des Moines, where he met his wife and in Overland Park, Kansas. He made the transition to the Convention and Visitors Bureau in Overland Park as Director of Marketing. He later took the top job at the Peoria Convention and Visitors Bureau, where he worked before a headhunter reached out about the job at what was the Greater Des Moines Convention and Visitors Bureau. In addition to learning more about what it takes to bring big ticket events to the region, the Business Records sat down with Edwards to ask about his leadership style and his thoughts on where Des Moines has been, where it's going, and his future with Catch Des Moines. Here is some of what we learned. Describe your management style. I would say I am a big team player. I'm a team leader. I'm a consensus builder. I can be told I am wrong, and I am often wrong, and my leadership team has no problem in telling me I'm wrong. My background with Marriott taught me so much about how to treat your employees. You treat your employees like you treat your family. If you treat your employees right, in turn, they will treat the customer and everyone they encounter right. How has the convention and visitors industry changed? It's changed a lot. When I first got into the industry, I went to conventions and it was old white men. While we were being run by old white men, there were thousands of women in the industry. Hotel salespeople, marketing people coming into CVB roles. And then we started seeing women come into our industry as CEOs and things like that. So that was one big change. Just the diversity of our organizations began to change. Another big change was that a lot of CVB people came out of hotels and that has changed. Now we get people from all walks of life. On my team, I have a couple of people that were in a hotel business, but for the most part, they may have some other event experience, but they've had strong marketing experience somewhere else. We're also seeing more young people involved in our organizations. You look at our marketing team. They're young and they're creative and they know all this stuff about digital marketing and social media. I'll bet once a week our social media people are out doing TikTok videos. So there's all these new avenues to get our message out. After 22 years, what keeps you motivated? Challenges. I'm still challenged. We came off a devastating last two years with COVID and the downturn so now it's building up again. That's what brought me to Des Moines. Although I was challenged in Peoria, I saw a real future in Des Moines. We moved here in the dead of winter, gloomy, dark, and I scratched my head a few times. Have I made the right move? I'm moving my family and my kids were pretty well settled, but then things started popping. Within a couple of months of being here, Polk County called and asked me to come over for a meeting, and we started talking about building this new arena and building a new events center. And that excited me, and I could see the vision there. Then all these little pieces started happening downtown. The library moved out, and the World Food Prize moved in. We built a new library. The Science Center came downtown. All these buildings were being built, Insurance companies and financial institutions started upgrading their buildings. Tons of people were working downtown again. Downtown was starting to become a vibrant place. The burbs started to explode. All these pieces started to fall together and it was like, whoa, we are building a huge metro area and a huge opportunity for visitors. I'm still challenged. Next March, we will again host the NCAA Tournament, which has always been a crown jewel for the community and for me personally, so I would like to stay around to see that through. Are you putting together a plan to retire soon? My wife and I have talked about it. We're in the very preliminary stages of talking about retirement. There's some good things to come. Even next summer, there's things we're working on right now that I may want to see come to reality. I also know I'm getting older and I would like to slow down and spend more time with my family and traveling more, things like that. What are some of the lessons from the pandemic that Catch Des Moines has learned and will take forward? We've seen devastation in the travel industry, Maybe the first time was 9-11, especially in the big markets like New York, Chicago, Miami. We saw a drop in occupancies and visitorships, but it wasn't like those major cities. Then there was the recession of 2008 and nine, and Des Moines always kind of remained above the radar on some of that stuff. So we were blessed that way. Then came the pandemic hit. And we had never seen anything like this. Your hearts were broken when you saw the thousands of employees laid off. Hotel employees, restaurant, retail, all the different travel-related jobs. So that was a challenge. How do we build this back up? So I think everyone in our industry had to figure out how to continue to stay in front of the customer the leisure traveler who someday will make the trip again, the meeting planners, the sports planners, and assure them when they're ready, we're ready. We did a lot of messaging, but because our budgets were cut so low, we did a lot of social media and a lot of free stuff that we got word out with, and it worked. Once people were ready to travel again, they knew Iowa was a pretty open state. They knew Des Moines was a safe, clean city. We already messaged all of that. It gave us a whole new look at how we market and advertise. I think it's an important part of the future. Although we're almost back to normal, business travel isn't quite back to where it once was, and some people still are not ready to travel yet. And until we get to that point, once they're ready to travel, we want them to consider coming to Des Moines. Greg Edwards at a glance, age 67, family, married, four children and three grandchildren. Education, University of Northern Colorado, degree in speech and communications. Hometown, grew up in Peoria, Illinois. Now lives in Greater Des Moines. Activities. Tinkering around the house, working in the yard, playing golf, and spending time with family. From the Iowa Stops Hunger column. Food Pantries Dig In As Need Rises. Pantry Director Builds Relationships As She Works to Meet Increasing Need. By Michael Crumb. Quote, this world might be falling apart in 100 ways, but if you can't make one person feel fed, you can't expect children to learn. You can't expect health issues to go away if people don't have food. It is just as basic as it comes. End quote. Andrea Cook, Program Director of Partnership Place in Johnston. Food pantries and food banks across Iowa are seeing the effects of what some describe as a perfect storm as they see sharp increases in the number of people seeking assistance following the reduction of SNAP benefits earlier this year, compounded by the effects of inflation and high gas prices. The Business record sat down recently with Andrea Cook, the Program Director of Partnership Place in Johnston, to learn more about how the pantry is coping with the rise in need and what challenges may still lie ahead. The pantry offers food, clothing, personal care items, diapers, and even dog food, as well as mentoring programs and food support for the school district. Through the third week of June, Partnership Place, a member of the Des Moines Area Religious Council's Food Pantry Network, had seen a 64% increase in the number of families served, compared with the entire month of June in 2021. The number of unique individuals visiting the pantry was up 87%. Nearly 500 families are visiting the pantry each month. In some places across the state, numbers are exceeding those recorded during the early months of the pandemic. For Cook, her job is all about building relationships, whether that's with the more than 100 volunteers who give their time each month to keep the pantry open, or those who visit to get food to put on their family's table. With the increased stress her team faces, Cook makes sure to touch base with each of them every day to make sure they are doing all right. For those who visit, she makes them feel welcome reaching out to touch the shoulder of one woman who thanked her for opening the pantry from 4 to 6 p.m., because it's easier for her to visit during those hours, or sharing compliments with another visitor over the woman's eyeglass frames. Relationships are important everywhere, Cook said. When you talk about people who have very little income, who don't have literal currency to share, those relationships are everything, No matter why they're here, we don't judge. We always assume it's for a good reason. It's just very important for people to have that connection, to not feel like they have to tell a story as to why. I don't need to know. I'm glad they found us. Here's more of what we learned from our conversation with Cook. Are you seeing an increase in first-time visitors to the pantry? This month, June, so far we've had up to 40 who are brand new. And this time of year, that's not normal. We have a form we have to sign once a fiscal year. So it's very easy to track because starting July 1st, everyone signs it. signs it. So in July and August, we have a lot of people signing it. But you get to April, May, and June, everyone has been here before. But this year, that's not the case. Traditionally, the busiest months for a food pantry are October through December. With the increases you're seeing now, are you concerned about the pantry's ability to handle that demand later in the year? I'm definitely concerned. The monetary donation part of it, we're definitely seeing that level off. We just went through our budgeting process, and I did not raise our donation amounts. I pray that they stay level. I really can't predict that, but I'm definitely thinking if we see a 40% increase over a typical October, November, December, it's got me worried. I'm not feeling warm and fuzzy about it. What is the message you would tell the community about the need to keep food insecurity in the spotlight? The need has always been there. It's not going to go away. There is always a way for someone to help. Every bite of food that hits my plate, while I paid for that, it wasn't all me. There's a whole machine that we're all interconnected with and a part of. And if there's one thing the pandemic taught us, is that interconnectivity is razor thin in so many ways. That flap of the butterfly wing over there, that impacts huge over here. That's just all the more in my mind as we move forward in these very unpredictable and expensive times. If you're finding yourself struggling, I guarantee there's somebody who is suffering worse and carrying that burden longer. If you feel like you're not doing enough, there's always a way to help, and those little things really do make a difference. What can you say to help people overcome the stigma that may still exist in visiting a food pantry? People ask me all the time, who comes to our door? You name it, we see everybody. Any person you encounter in your day. There are a thousand reasons why somebody might find themselves coming to our door. It's literally anybody. I guarantee that in the course of your day, Everybody is encountering at least one person who has been to a pantry in the past month. It's not a character flaw to need assistance. There is nothing you have done. There are so many factors working against people. More than 80% of the adults that visit here are employed. Most are double-employed, usually underemployed. But they have to work two to three jobs to be able to afford a family of four and basic living expenses. It has nothing to do with how hard you work or what job you've chosen that determines if you're hungry. Do you often see people who have used the pantry later paying it forward by volunteering or donating when their circumstances have improved? All the time. We hear from people who say they used our services when they needed it and now want to pay it back. It happens all the time. People recognize they were in that position and now want that to go to someone else who needs it now. It's a far higher percentage than any of us are giving who figure out a way to do more. They recognize the need and whether they volunteer for an hour or clean out their closet, or find extras in their pantry, there's always a way to help. In a related story, Demand at Food Pantries Increases to Levels Not Seen Since Onset of Pandemic by Michael Crum. A food assistance network that just began to catch its breath following record levels of food insecurity during the early months of the coronavirus pandemic in 2020 is finding itself strained once again. The reduction in Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program benefits, high inflation, and gas prices nearing $5 a gallon are all taking a toll. The number of visitors to food pantries is up. Food donations are down. And supply chain disruptions are causing the cancellation of shipments of food coming from programs administered by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. It's kind of three strikes on a lot of people, said Jacob Wanderscheid, executive director of the Food Bank of Siouxland in Sioux City. We had the extended SNAP benefits go away, then increased gas prices and inflation and now we're starting summer with a kind of heat wave, so I'm sure people may be having the ability to turn off the air conditioning at night are having to run it a lot more because it's hot. So we're getting a lot of factors piling on each other, he said. At the Sioux City Food Bank, the cost of food the agency buys has jumped 25% from 2020. That comes as food donations are down, Wanderscheid said. We're seeing a lot less local donations, especially from individuals, than we were a year or two years ago, he said. This was the first year since the pandemic that we've been able to have the National Letter Carriers Stamp Out Hunger event, which typically brings 18,000 pounds of donated product through our door. This year we had 6,000, so that is two-thirds less product that came in in April. I don't think we've had that small of donations since the first year in 2006. Wanderscheid said he believes increased inflation and fuel costs are causing more people to hold on to the food they may otherwise donate for their own use. The Food Bank's Pantry Network served 1,400 more individuals in April than were served in April 2021 and 1,500 more in May than in May 2021. And in May, the pantries in the food bank's territory served 1,600 more individuals than were served in May 2020. And the numbers we saw then were fairly unheard of, Wanderscheid said. He said it's important for people who are on the front lines in the fight against food insecurity to keep their head down and stay focused in order to meet their mission of putting food on the tables of people in need. While we work to shorten the line of hunger and try to get as many people out of food insecurity as we can, we'll continue to be a supplier of food, and we know that is not that it is not going to be a tomorrow, next month, or next year solution so I know that when people come to the food bank, they know that we're in it for as long as it takes, he said. Wanderscheid said, the food bank is working our system and redoubling our efforts in contacting and making sure the food suppliers know what we're seeing and working with our financial donors to know that we're not out of the woods yet and to speak to the pressures they feel when they buy gas or go to the grocery store are being experienced by people who are experiencing food insecurity, and that we'll continue to need their support to continue doing what we're doing. The Food Bank of Siouxland has also adjusted its delivery and pickup schedule to pantries and donors to increase efficiency and offset the increasing fuel costs as much as possible. The effort was launched in 2019 but the food bank has doubled down on those efforts in recent months. We've set up delivery days in three or four different directions out of Sioux City and then scheduled pickups on the way back into town. So we aren't sending multiple trucks down the same path for different trips, Wanderscheid said. We're trying to use those trips as well as we can to save on those fuel costs. That has really helped us to stretch those fuel expenses as much as we can. On the other side of the state, the Riverbend Food Bank in Davenport is seeing a 50% increase in traffic at its pantry network in Davenport and Moline, Illinois. It is also seeing a 5% decrease in food donations from distributors and grocery stores. It also had as many as 17% of its orders from the Federal Emergency Food Assistance Program canceled. The food bank receives about 25% of its food supply from the program, which is administered by the USDA. For the Des Moines Area Religious Council, its food pantry network saw a 40% increase in April and a 60% increase in June, compared with the same months in 2021. And organization leaders said that trend was continuing through June, when it recorded its busiest single day of food pantry use in the past two years on June 2nd. DMARC also saw more than 1,000 people use its pantries for the first time in April and May. In May, 15,406 individuals came through the agency's pantries. Of those, 1,200 were first-time users. The numbers being seen in the DMARC network are above those seen before SNAP benefits increased in the early months of the pandemic. Matt Unger, DMARC's CEO, said the combination of reduced SNAP benefits inflation, and higher fuel costs has resulted in a much faster, steeper increase in pantry use than they expected. We had hoped for and thought it would be a more gentle ramp up, he said. In March, before SNAP benefits changed, we had an 11% increase from March last year and over February. That's not out of this world. When we were setting records each month before the pandemic, we were seeing anywhere from an 8 to 10% increase, so we felt we were in a good spot. And then April happened, and it was a 42% increase. That got our attention, he said. He described the combination of factors as a perfect storm. And with children home from school for the summer, DMARC was on pace for a 75% increase in June, over June of 2021. We're going to be right back where we were, volume-wise, before the pandemic, Unger said. The thing we didn't expect quite as much is the increase we've seen with the number of people who've never come to a food pantry before. That number in April was over 90%, and May jumped 140%. Those numbers scare me because it creates a new baseline. It's not just folks who are coming back who had their SNAP benefits reduced, but now we have this whole new universe of folks who were thrown into food insecurity that we haven't seen before. The result is the pantries are ordering more to make sure they keep their shelves stocked, and the DMARC warehouse is making sure it has more on hand to meet that need. Unger said. We've been trying to get more in larger quantities, get things with really long shelf life at the best deals we can, so we have supply on hand, he said. We've been able to keep up with it so far. Granted, we saw this coming, so we tried to get in front of it, he said. All of Demark's costs have increased too, whether it be the cost of buying food, or the cost of fuel for its mobile units. Unger projects that the number of people visiting DMARC pantries will continue to rise through at least July, but will begin to level off. I would hope it's not on the level we've been seeing the past three months, and then kind of see what happens with the economy and inflation, he said. He said the opportunity for policy changes is down the road, including the ability to increase SNAP benefits through farm bill negotiations. We need to look at what more can we do to get more funding in SNAP. Are there other creative ways we can look at some of these programs and look at some of the things that really worked during the pandemic? Because some of these programs were working the way they were supposed to for the first time, Unger said. To me, that says we need to be looking at how do we get to this level so this program operates the way it is supposed to. Some of that is work we will engage in, but then we're just going to have to be out in the community for support as much as we can to make sure we can get the food together and money together to meet the needs because no one should have to go hungry because of costs, he said. Unger said it's important to keep food insecurity in the spotlight, especially as the need continues to rise during times of economic uncertainty. He said, It's going to keep getting worse. Don't look away. Don't stop paying attention. You're listening to the reading of the Business Record for Friday, July 8, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. Our next article is a guest opinion. What's Love Got to Do with Work? Submitted by Jan Fried. In the early 1980s, Tina Turner recorded What's Love Got to Do with It? It became her first and only Billboard Hot 100 number one single. It is a catchy tune, but What's Love Got to Do with Work? Love and Work, How to Find What You Love, Love What You Do, and Do It for the Rest of Your Life, is a hit. Marcus Buckingham's latest book published by Harvard Business Review. But he admits his book would not have been a hit in the 80s. He is out to create a movement to connect love with work. But long before Buckingham wrote this book, Our own sage, Jim Austree, wrote Love and Profit, The Art of Caring Leadership in 1992. Autry admits he was a pioneer in this space. To learn more, I interviewed Autry about what motivated him to write Love and Profit and what he thinks of the message now. Autry had a tough time getting this book published largely because of the title. He was a student of leadership, watching how others were leading and what was working or not working. At the time, he was leading creative people in the publishing industry. He realized people were more productive and satisfied if they were engaged and involved. When I asked Autry to define caring leadership, he said, I wanted to empower people because they knew how to do their jobs better than I did. The role of leadership is to cast a vision and turn that into reality by inspiring them to buy into the vision. Caring is about being respectful and collegial. For the leaders who used the command and control philosophy, we got them coaching and counseling, he said. Autry continued, Caring doesn't mean you have to like each other, but there has to be mutual respect. We have to care about customers, about our products and services, our company. We have to care about working together. And this means no superstars, but collaborators. Business schools are known for teaching how to focus on the bottom line, the hard stuff. But the soft stuff, caring, compassion, and empathy is really the hard stuff. Love and profit is all about servant leadership. Autry reminded me that the time has come to blend love and work. Be patient. Ask questions, because it helps frame the situation to inform thinking. Servant leadership is about coaching, teaching, and mentoring, he said. Sounds true, is an organization leading the way with a new approach to learning how to lead. Their Inner MBA program is a nine-month online immersion to train people in the inner skills or soft skills that lead to greater performance and fulfillment at work. CEOs are the faculty members, and students are all ages and stages of life, with many of them already having earned MBAs and beyond. Participants learn how to help others find love in their work. Even though Love and Profit was challenging to get published, it became a bestseller at the time. And now Buckingham is taking the business world by storm with Love and Work. The pandemic and the Great Resignation have put employees in the driver's seat. Leaders need to realize employees want and need autonomy, flexibility, compassion, and empathy. Recently, I interviewed Buckingham for my podcast, Becoming a Sage. I wanted to know more about why he thinks his book is resonating with so many at this time. Buckingham believes the pandemic has put the spotlight on the need to attract and retain employees especially top performers. He is known for the statement, people don't leave bad companies, they leave bad bosses. And the most immediate manager is the person most influential to job satisfaction. Now, he claims, people leave bad teams. Team leaders need to wake up and pay attention. He said, most of our workplaces are loveless. Buckingham believes that instead of the traditional span of control, we should be thinking about span of attention. Now more than ever, leaders should be paying attention to employees. The pandemic gave employees at all levels the time to reevaluate their lives. Most people don't want to be a transactional cog in a machine. They want to feel like their lives matter. If companies want growth, learning, innovation, creativity, collaboration, and resilience, Buckingham advocates creating workplaces where people can find and experience love and passion and express emotions. One way to show love and pay attention is for leaders to have a weekly 15-minute check-in with each direct report and ask three broad questions. What did you love last week? What did you loathe last week? And what can I do to support you? Buckingham believes that if leaders don't have time for this simple weekly check in with each report, then they either have too many reports or they are perpetuating a loveless workplace. He also said the culture can be predicted by how many leaders report directly to the CEO. If the number is greater than 15, the culture doesn't support paying attention to people. If this is the case, it will be hard to retain and attract the best talent. After 30 years, Autry still believes love has a lot to do with profit and Buckingham is now carrying the torch to make it happen. Jan E. Freed, Ph.D., is a leadership development consultant and coach. She's the author of Leading with Wisdom, Sage Advice from 100 Experts, and a TEDx Des Moines speaker. Her forthcoming book is Breadcrumb Legacy, How Great Leaders Live a Life Worth Remembering. Next, the Closer Look column, Meet a Leader You Should Know. Candy Carsons, Director of the North Iowa Area Community College John John Entrepreneurial Center. By Sarah Bogards. For Candy Carsons, running lemonade stands and selling Girl Scout cookies while growing up in Mason City weren't just fun childhood activities, but also her earliest memories of being entrepreneurial. She didn't know then that it would lead to starting and selling two businesses and now serving as director of the John Papajohn Entrepreneurial Center at North Iowa Area Community College, where Carsons first went to college. She succeeded Tim Putnam after his departure in December 2021. The NIACC JPEC is one of five entrepreneurial, educational, and resource centers that were imagined and first funded by John Papajohn, founder of Equity Dynamics and venture capital firm Papajan Capital Resources. The center at NIAC serves nine counties in northern Iowa, bringing mentoring programs and financial resources to Main Street businesses and startups in the region. After selling her second business, a soy candle line called Uncorked, that gained national and international wholesale clients, in 2017, Carsons went back to pharmaceutical sales, the field where she started her career. She knew the work well, but was working from home and felt a disconnect from the community after her first stint traveling for pharmaceutical sales and being a business consultant with clients outside of Iowa. I really wanted to be able to give back with the skills and abilities and knowledge that I had to people in my own area, she said. She took the role of Director of Innovation and Acceleration at the JPEC in 2019 and took the lead on the center's mentorship programming, including the NIAC cohort of the University of Iowa Venture School Program and being the director of the Papa John Center Venture Mentoring Service Program, which is based on the Venture Mentoring Service at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. The business record recently caught up with Carson's to discuss her new role. Other than lemonade stands, how did you get on the entrepreneurial track? I think even before owning our own business, one of the things that was so unique about working in pharmaceutical sales is because we had to come up with our own plans of actions and run our territory as if it was our own business. It was kind of my first exposure within the boundaries of what they let you do and what you're allowed to do. Take your plan of action and work those quarterly. And I had a team, so you know, it was really the entrepreneurial mindset. How does the NIAC-JPEC work with the North Iowa Area Small Business Development Center? We are integrated with the SBDC where other Papa John Centers work with the SBDCs but aren't necessarily integrated. It's been really great to be able to combine the SBDC resources and the Papa John Center resources. We have a bench with a lot of depth so we can help a lot of people. The Papa John Centers stay very connected across the state and we work really hard whether it's a retail business or the next ag technology, because we have that and everything in between. Doing that, we have a lot more depth in the resources that we have. We use a lot of mentors in different capacities. That was one of the first things I did when I came here, was build our, build our mentor program. We really think it's that lean startup approach Plus, adding in the mentorship and our integrated office with the SBDC is what really helps elevate us. We're the smallest of all the centers. We're the only one out of a community college. So we do a lot more economic development than we do work with students because we only have them for two years. So it limits our time. Can you explain how the Lean Startup Model used in the University of Iowa Venture School cohorts works? It's really a combination of Steve Blank, an American entrepreneur, his Lean Startup Model, and Alexander Osterwalder, a Swiss business theorist, and the business model Canvas. It takes those two and puts them together so that you're going to build your foundational business model. You're going to write down your hypotheses, what you think customers want, need, and will pay for. And then you're going to do a lot of discovery in a seven-week time frame, going out and talking to people about what they do want and need and what they have paid for in the past. It's not always a solution to a problem. A lot of times it's a problem like Airbnb. There wasn't really a problem that there weren't enough hotels, but it wasn't necessarily what people wanted. So they found out what people wanted, and then you end up designing your business model based on the feedback you get from those early interviews. How do the NIAC JPEC and the SBDC apply their combined resources to the variety of businesses in North Iowa? All of us that work with clients are actually trained SBDC counselors, so we can all work with anyone and use their reporting system and their resources too. But for the most part, our SBDC director works with retail and Main Street businesses, has office hours in several of the rural areas. The new innovation and acceleration is not a physical space like an incubator or an accelerator, as much as it is finding mentors, finding actual acceleration programs, and finding capital. Because in the rural areas, even in Iowa, in general, finding venture capital, especially for the more innovative, high-risk business ideas, we really lack venture capital overall in the Midwest. It's our job to help entrepreneurs connect with all the resources we have in Iowa. Between the Papa John Centers, some of the other resources we have are Iowa Startup Accelerator. There are a lot of accelerators out of Des Moines, so our job on the Papa John side is to network with all of those people so we understand the resources that are available and we know who to send where. What is the NIAC-JPEX approach to helping entrepreneurs with funding and venture capital needs? We just lack that big infusion of venture capital, so we may get creative sometimes. We do a lot of contest prep. We work really hard to prep business owners because $5,000 and $10,000 to a really early-stage business can mean a lot, and it can get them the visibility they need to get to the $25,000 or $50,000. We're in the grassroots trying to get them to the next levels and meet the right people, and get the right training. We've worked really closely with Iowa Startup Accelerator and ISA Ventures, and we're working on becoming a satellite office for them and their accelerator program, and help them find more contributors, more investors. The other way is we work with people. We connect people with mentors to work on that friends and family initial stage funding. Most people use their credit card or get money from friends and family. So if they're going to do that, we want to just set the friends and family expectations and paperwork upright in the beginning. We try to make the bootstrapping easier so they can get to where a venture capitalist will actually take notice or they're ready to present. What is your overall vision for the NIAC JPEC as director? I'm the fifth director. Some of the programming has changed, and the people have changed, but the the goal of growing successful businesses in northern Iowa hasn't changed. For me, it's not recreating the wheel. It's being able to expand on the foundation that was already created. So expanding our Venture Mentor Services program, we are in a pilot there. We've got a pilot going with an innovation workspace, which is similar to a digital fabrication lab. And we've had several entrepreneurs use that space to prototype their ideas, and so they get a working model. The goal is taking those two programs out of pilots and into full-blown functional and sustainable programs. During COVID, we had to learn to use the virtual tools, and we found that with our large geography, We can get more people into our programs from around our geography because they don't have to drive. We're working with new partners, especially in the area of diversity, equity, inclusiveness. We've got some partners in different counties where they have more Spanish-speaking populations. We have a really good foundation. It's just continuing to expand and reach. I like to say refine and align. How have perceptions of entrepreneurship in rural areas changed in your experience? In general, the attitude for a long time, just overall attitude but not from one specific group, was that we are not big enough. We can't create that here. Technology and the internet and e-commerce and all these things have given people the ability to start a business from anywhere. It's really given rural area entrepreneurs a more level playing field. It was before I got here, but a gentleman selling kaleidoscopes in this little town of Manly, Iowa, that's about 5,000 people. There were so few people who sold what he had that with a good e-commerce platform and a good website, he's one of the most well-known kaleidoscope companies in the country. People think they can only be small because we're in a small area, but we're connected to the world with technology now. So it's kind of overcoming that thought process that we can't grow that big because of where we live, because you can grow anything big living here. We have land labor and some capital. It's really getting people to overcome that attitude that they have to live in a big city to create something. Briefly, I'll share highlights from the Fearless column. Six takeaways from our Fearless Focus conversation on com- confidence by Emily Kestel from a virtual event held in June, talking about what confidence means, what it looks like, and how to strengthen it in ourselves and others. The six key takeaways from the conversation it's okay to be a work in progress. You'd be hard pressed to find someone who feels completely confident about themselves all of the time. Nobody's perfect and everybody fails. Comparison is the thief of confidence. Create healthy ecosystems where young girls and women can take risks and thrive. Know your values, strengths, and weaknesses. Challenge, challenge societal norms and how you fit within them. And finally, don't just hand out flowers for milestone moments. We often only celebrate and recognize people and their work when something extraordinary happens. But recognizing smaller moments and achievements helps build confidence bit by bit. And that does it for today's reading of the business record for Friday, July 8th, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.